Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, I guess I don't say this too often, but in case you're, you're looking or are curious about it, I'm going to be teaching and reading from the, the ESV, English Standard Version. There's lots of good versions of the Bible. If you brought a, a different version, it, uh, it could be good, give you a little bit of a different perspective or flavor on the text. Uh, but that's the one that we're using for the morning. There's a black hardcover Bible in front of you. If you want uh, that, you could take it with you. We'd love for you to be able to follow along. Before I begin reading or look at where we're at, if we haven't got a chance to meet, my name's Lance. Uh, I'm a member here at the church and have uh, served in, as a pastor for probably, I guess we're coming up on like over nine years, coming up on 10. It's been a huge joy, a privilege for me, and I'm so uh, glad to get to continue to do this. What we're going to do is we're going to read the end of Matthew chapter 6. So why Matthew chapter 6? Well, our practice, uh, Scripture tells us that we should heed to and consider the whole counsel of God, the entirety of it, not just the parts that are most exciting for us. And so one of the best ways I think to do that is to take books of the Bible and then do our best to work through them systematically from beginning to end. And that is what we have done and continue to do. So we're in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Quite frankly, you ready for this? It's a profound insight. We're in Matthew 6, 25 because it comes after Matthew 6, 24. So that's, uh, that's the, the skivvy for the morning. I do want to say before I begin reading, though, that it's going to start, this text this morning is going to start with the word therefore. You know, the most consistent and easiest of all interpretive clues, right? If there's a therefore, ask yourself, what's it there for? You got it. So a reminder, Jesus has just been teaching us concerning our stuff. And I say stuff Because when he says you can't serve both God and money, the God there, mammon, this idea, is not only money, although money is dominant, but the things that money money can provide us, the comforts of life, the convenience of life, the power of life. And he has just got done saying it's an unwise thing, natural, but unwise, to not be able to see straight, to store up all this treasure in what amounts to a bad bank, There's going to be moths and rust, and that thing is open for thieves. It's open for business, for thievery. So why would you do that? Instead, you should invest in a place where that does not happen. He's just taught us, essentially, how to loosen our grip one finger at a time on the things of this earth. Because Jesus is a good teacher, he knows that's going to lead to something. It's potential. If you Say to yourself, all right, I'm going to stop pretending that I control these things and I can provide them. It may lead to worry. You may say to yourself, well, but if I don't have these treasures on earth, am I going to be provided for? Am I going to eat? Will I have a job? Am I going to be safe? Am I going to be okay? The questions of life press in on us. And if we, or as we are offering ourselves to God, the question starts to become, how do I keep myself from worrying about it? Jesus knows the soul of human beings, having created them after all, sustaining them after all, redeeming them after all. And so he's going to teach us, beginning in the 21st, 21st, remember when you said that, Brian, one time? The 21st, the 25th verse of Matthew chapter 6. So let's read down through the end of the chapter, and we're going to learn something today about anxiousness. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. 
For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I know we've prayed already, but I'd like to be specific and ask that we learn from these words. Let's pray. God, we ask that you'd rescue us, deliver us from our anxieties, We need your assurance. We want and desire the rest that you offer to us. And so we pray that you would send your spirit here now. I pray that my words could be encouraging. That you would open our eyes in a way that we're unable to because we see so dimly. You'd soften our hearts despite the hardness of them. You'd begin to move us so that we would hear you through the pages of Scripture. God, we simply want faithfulness. We want faithfulness to our confession. And we've confessed that this is not dead ink on a dead page, but life. And so we ask that as we've read and considered, we've sung and prayed, that you'd give us life through the words of Jesus. I pray that we would take care, that we not ignore or set aside or somehow miss completely what's being offered to us. We need your help for that. God, we confess our neediness. It's not going to be our strength, but yours. Holy Spirit, you know us more than we know ourselves. So give us what is necessary to walk in Christ's likeness. We ask that in his name. Amen. I don't know if you knew this, but there's a pandemic... Now wait, it's not what you think. I think that nearly everyone who studies, thinks on, researches, looks up, would admit that there is an epidemic of anxiety in human beings. 20 years ago, there was a study done between the years of 2001 and 2003 that estimated for adults 18 plus, this is not considering children for whom things like anxiety and anxiousness is accelerating at an alarming pace, that just merely for adults 18 plus, that nearly one in five adults were afflicted by a constant ongoing sense of anxiousness, oftentimes to the point of being debilitating or severely limiting their ability to enjoy and engage in life. There are people who experience ongoing anxiety related to trauma, in the past, their sense of security and safety or stability in the world has been, for them, it seems permanently shaped by a moment of suffering or difficulty that leads them to be unable to continue in life the way that they wanted to. There is a great percentage of people who experience social anxiety, a fear of coming across wrong or an inability to represent oneself well. There's a percentage of people who can't even put a finger on exactly what it is. If you said to them, is it social situations? Is it performance? Is it work? Is it a trauma situation? They don't know. They just have a sort of general ongoing anxiety about life. Nearly one in five people suffer in a continuous way or an ongoing way with this, let alone what I'm, I'm sure all of us could relate to, that at some point or another, we've had moments where our chest tightens just a bit, breath is a little bit harder to get, and we feel worried and anxious deeply about ourselves or others or the state of the world or the things that we have or the things that we don't have. Young people over the last number of years, those under the age of 18, for probably many different reasons, have also been growing in their understanding or their disclosure of feeling these kind of feelings. Some have pointed to performance pressures. We have an increasingly competitive world where how we do and how we test and how we present matters. I think one of the main culprits in this could be social media itself the absolute ease and perhaps 
what feels like the necessity of young people to constantly put themselves on display and to be measured in likes and followers and influence has led to an ongoing and increasing difficulty of soul It turns out that a desire to control or an, and an inability to control what we want to control is part of the human experience. What's amazing is that Jesus seems to know this back in Matthew chapter 6. Imagine that. Why would he say not once in verse 25, do not be anxious? Not twice. Verse 31, do not be anxious. Not only three times in these little short verses, verse 34, do not be anxious. Why does he say this if he does not expect that those who would be hearing him teach, would be struggling with anxiety. What's amazing is, is that those human beings must have struggled with or been tempted toward anxiousness. And I say struggle because part of the human experience in our body and being sinned against means that it's not easily con- to control anxiety. It's not something you just say, just stop or just overly spiritualize it, but also tempted to because there's a spiritual component. It must be that human beings in our existence, even way back then, dealt with this. What's amazing is, is they didn't even have high inflation rates. Their eggs were probably cheaper. Housing, I don't know exactly what the market was like. But can you imagine that? They had no Insta, but Jesus had to command them and tell them, hey, don't be anxious. It seems that the church continued on even after the death and resurrection of Jesus, even after the Spirit falls at Pentecost. It must be that there is a sense of anxiety that's prevalent in those who are trying to live in this life. Paul addresses the church at Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 4, he says to them, do not be anxious about anything. Why would he say don't be anxious? Unless he knew the temptation and the existence issue that it is to be anxious. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think that Paul is helpful to them, not only in reminding them of the teaching of Jesus to not be anxious, but to tell them to pray and to do so with thanksgiving. I think he's giving us a hint here that one remedy or one potential path toward ridding yourselves of anxiety or what to do with it when anxiety inevitably comes is to be grateful. Gratitude as antidote in some ways, again, I don't think we should oversimplify any of this, seems to be Paul's instruction. Rehearse Gratitude. Be thankful. Peter instructs the church in much the same way in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It's interesting now, verse 7, how does he define what does humble yourselves mean? He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In the same way that Paul gives a little hint toward one of the ways that we can combat anxiety with gratitude, Peter gives us a spiritual insight here that sometimes at the heart of anxiety, there is a kind of pride. Why else would he say, humble yourselves? The reality is, is that we were designed to be dominion takers in the image of God, But sin has corrupted this image of God in us such that we consistently try to control what we were never designed to control. Sometimes anxiety is the inability to let go of the idea that you should be able to control something that you can't control. You can't stop thinking about it because you believe by doing so you can upend and change the way that things should be. And so Peter says, humble yourselves. And I love the imagery here. That there's a moment of humility where you realize you're under God's mighty hand, that there are things that are outside of your control. And then so what does he tell you to do in verse 7? I love the language of casting your anxieties on him. There's an active chucking that happens. And if you think about that as a spiritual concept, it means that in a moment, if the Spirit of God were to give you that kind of humility, there's sometimes where what you need to do is, is sort of gather things up, and then do the very deeply spiritual act of just chucking them as hard as you can. Have you ever done a demo project where you get one of those big dumpsters? A big, massive, 25-foot dumpster? The best thing about that is that you can endlessly chuck 
to your heart's content. And Peter says, sometimes the way to combat anxiety is to humble yourself and just start casting. Why would Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, just in this passage, and why would Paul, and why would Peter consistently tell us to avoid or to watch for anxiety, if not for the fact that part of the human condition in a fallen world is that we will feel lack, that we will worry about our circumstances, that we will desire to control, to know for sure, to provide safety and security, and that when we do not have these things, it will tempt us. Anxiousness afflicts us. And so what I want to do is I want to go through and do our best to say, Spirit of God, help us. What would Jesus give us if he were going to listen to our needs in this area? What does he give us as some ways to consider it? The first thing we're going to do is just do a Bible study of sorts. The teaching of Jesus is full of illustrations. He's got pointed ideas. He's pulling stuff back from different places. So a lot of times when you're teaching through these sections of the Bible, doing a Bible study is what's necessary. You don't necessarily need me to come up with cute, cool, awesome illustrations because Jesus gives us a bunch. And so what I want to do is I'm going to go through 25 to 34, and what we're going to see is that he has piled logic upon logic. Why should we not be anxious? He's going to give us reason after reason after reason, like building a great Lego block tower Jesus adds one piece of logic on the next. And what I want to do is walk slowly with you through these stacked up pieces of logic. So the next time that we're faced with anxiety, we might remember the words of Jesus and say, what does he say about these things? And he's going to stack up block after block after block to help us. And then he's going to give us a bit of an action step, some things to run toward. We could put those into short little words. I think they would go something like this. We'd go ponder, cast, believe, seek. That's going to be the action steps for us, like teaching someone to fly fish. Here's how you do this. You ponder, you cast, you believe, and you seek. Let's look at verse 25 for the first bit of logic. Ready? We got the green piece. The green Lego block is down there. We're ready to build the tower. Remember the key to this, we've got to have a firm foundation, so that's, that's been laid. And the first bit of logic, verse 25, here's what Jesus is going to say to us. He's going to tell us in verse 25 that life is more than food and clothing. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. And then he asks this question, this is the first bit of logic. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It seems to be that his first instinct to us in the midst of anxiety is to lift our eyes and to begin to question the importance of the things that feel that they are important. Anxiety is a tyrant that demands immediate and full-fledged attention. And oftentimes... The sense of living in this way, what you feel like is an inability to stop making mountains out of molehills. And that's what it seems like Jesus is trying to say. He said, you know, why would you spend so much time worrying about these things? Isn't there more to your life than what seems like the most important thing right now? Life is more than food and clothing. In other words, the step, the logic that he used to he seems to set out here is to say that when we step back and realize that most of us, though we want to be provided for and need these things, they're not the most important things about us. Maybe I'll say it more clearly. What is most important about you is not what you eat and not how you look. There is more to your life than that. Anxiousness is an ever-shrinking tunnel of this is everything 
And Jesus starts with a question. Is it everything? Is it really? Is what you're seeking and what you're worried about, is it really that important? And the rhetorical question, isn't your life more than food or clothing? The answer we're supposed to give, of course, is yeah, actually it is. So what is important here? It's a question of importance. Second, he goes to verse 26, and he stacks up another bit of logic. He gives a a wonderful illustration. He says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. Interesting phrase. Look at the birds of the air, he says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. There's actually going to be two bits of logic here with this first one. He says, I want you to think about creation. I want you to look around you and see all that is being upheld right now by the hand of God. Birds don't work like we work. They don't have capacity like we have capacity. They don't know where their food is coming from or how they're going to be provided for. And yet God takes care of them all. When I was a kid growing up, there was a a poster that I saw a number of times, my grandparents' house being one of them. There was two little kids, toddlers in some overalls, standing by a wheat field. They had hats on, and there was a little caption underneath it with one kid looking at the other one, and it said, you've been farming long? And it's just utterly adorable, because it's like, you know what I mean, these little kids. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, have you ever seen a poster with a bird on a tractor? Looking at another exhausted bird with a hat on and some overalls? Does the bird chirp to the other? You've been farming long? You ever seen a bird digging a hole to plant an oak tree? Saying, I got to have some eggs in 50 years. Where are they going to go? The preposterousness, this idea that you don't see birds striving like this, and yet God is able to uphold all creation, ought to awaken us to the reality that God is able to give to even the smallest of creatures all that they need by His power. And if He upholds creation like this, can He do it for you? It's interesting that birds are born into a world and subsist not knowing all that we know. I had a bird in our garage, made a little nest in a box, waited till I'm pretty sure that the birdlings were hatched. <laughs> Is that what they call them? The, the little ones? Things were hatched and gone. And then I chucked that thing out of our garage as far as I could. And part of me did think to myself, well, this is really sad. It's got no house anymore. And then I thought, now nah, God provides. There's trees everywhere. He'll just make a new house. Jesus is trying to open our eyes again. What's the first question? Isn't life more than food? That is a tunnel opening kind of question. And in the same way, why does he say look at the birds? Because it is a perspective opening question. You are a part of creation and God upholds all creation. The birds receive from the hand of God without toil and striving. And then he asks the next bit of logic. He says, let me ask you. Are you of more value than these birds? It's a rhetorical question. It's meant to stir us to our deepest Value and meaning. Does God not see you? Can He not uphold you as a part of creation even so much more than birds, which are smaller? The answer, of course, to this question is yes. We've been given the the image of God. We are eternal beings known before the foundation of the world. God's thoughts to us are more than the sand and the sea, the stars and the sky. His love for us has not nor ever will fail. He cannot and will not forsake. Are you not more valuable than these birds that flitter around the earth and God provides sometimes even a little box in a man's garage 
Are you not more valuable than them? If God can provide and feed the open mouth of the alien little, aren't the little birds being born are so gross. They're just ugly. If God can provide for providentially in his timing and his ways for each little open mouth of a bird, are you worried? Does he not care for you? This is a value question. Many times when we're in the midst of a spell of anxiousness, the subtle lie that is being told to us is that we are not known, not seen, not valued, and we simply won't make it. And Jesus reminds us, you're valued. He adds another block to it. The tower's getting big now. He says very, very plainly in verse 27, something extremely pragmatic. He says, how about this for don't be anxious? It doesn't work. Isn't that amazing? He says, here's the crazy part. You spend so much time worrying, you're not even good at it. It doesn't even help. He says, how many of you by worrying, let me just get a show of hands, how many of you by worrying can add a single hour to a span of life? Of course, the answer is no one. There's an interesting play on words here. I think it's, uh, of course, because Jesus is a wonderful teacher. He He adds a word in here. He says you can add to your span. Older translations may have said, how many of you can add even one cubit to your height? And that's a fitting word. You know, span can either be a height, tall. This word span here is used of Zacchaeus. When Jesus meets him and he describes in Scripture what Zacchaeus was like, and I don't know if you know what he's like, but what I was taught in the song is that he was a wee little man. And if if he needed to add a cubit to his height, then this is what in the word but a span could also be horizontal in your life span. And so Jesus asked the question, how about this? Okay, fine. If you don't have perspective, if food and clothing for, is everything right now, and if you look at the birds and you just don't see anything, and if you aren't sure that you're more valuable than that, how about this? Just try not to be anxious. Don't be anxious because it doesn't work. This reminds me of God's exchange with Job. Job is going through a period of suffering and things he cannot possibly understand And he begins to lecture God, and God lets him run off. Run, maybe I should say spout off at his mouth. And the way that he shuts his mouth is God says things like this, Oh, I forgot. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the universe? Remind me, are you the one that's hanging planets in the middle of nothing? Remind me again, do you provide and continually uphold the universe? I'm so sorry. Teach me, O Job. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, why would you spend so much time on something you cannot do? By worrying, could Zacchaeus add a cubit of height to his stature like a kid wishing to be an NBA basketball player hanging from a bar? Can you add an hour to your life? Is that in your control? The answer seems to be here. The thing that we're supposed to be confronted with is no, not really. Now, for some of you, you may think to yourself, this is not helping me. But it turns out that one of the greatest paths toward undoing anxiety in life is to admit it's not the rare moments that you're out of control, but it's all the time. Jesus essentially says something like this. Okay, so tell me about your problems. You feel powerless to do this. You're not sure if this is going to be provided for. You're not sure you can do that. You're not sure you can do this. It's as though he says, oh, how cute. You thought you could do those things? When were you ever upholding yourself? You see, our lives are not from beginning to end, a period of mostly having it all figured out where we're self-sufficient and sustaining ourselves. And then sometimes things get crazy and we better pray a lot because then God needs to uphold us. Nothing against the footprints in the sand thing, but it's not like some of the moments God is carrying us. No, Jesus tries to say, look, here's the thing. From the moment that you come into existence for all eternity into the future, you're always being upheld. You're never in control. That next breath of yours, where do you think it came from? 
The sunrise that met you this morning? Did you command it? What happens here is that we are left missing the control, the care, the blessing that God offers us each and every moment of our lives by worrying about things we were never meant to control. A bit of logic for you. Why should we desire to not be anxious? Plain and simple, it doesn't work. Next, he goes to verse 29. Here's another bit of logic. He says that God does it better than we could anyway. Even if we were in control, which we're not, we would do it terribly. He uses Solomon as an example in verse 29. He says, you know, if you consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Look at them. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I think there's a few bits of logic and lesson here. God is simply better at all the things that we try to imitate him at. A first thing, it's a bit of something to consider related to anxiety. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Here's one thing about anxiety. It grows. It grows. It's common this time of year to feel like a yard is totally out of control. I've gotten used to it now, but my first impressions of moving to Tallahassee is that we had moved to a rainforest jungle with actively murderous vines tried to kill anything we wanted. I walked in my yard this week and I was shocked at just how fast weeds grow compared to grass. And in some ways I was kind of impressed, you know, as I pulled them limb from limb from my yard. I'm kind of impressed. I think to myself, you know, weed, you weren't here. The grass was here. You weren't here like a week ago. And somehow your capacity to take sunlight and water, the smallest little amounts of the stuff, and you have now grown to be 5, 10, 20 times bigger than the little bits of grass. A weed can grow leaps and bounds before grass has a time to peek out in the morning. And I think anxiety can be like that. We should be careful because you give it just a little bit of sun, just a little bit of water, and it grows fast. It can take over heart and mind quicker than you imagined. So Jesus says, I want you to imagine though, let's say that you successfully killed all the weeds you don't want. And you got a beautiful flower bed there. You see, God grows beautiful and flowering things and they are better even than he says Solomon in all of his glory. Why does he use Solomon? Well, because Solomon was the wisest of us, the richest of us, the most ostentatious of us. I want you to imagine all that Solomon gathered, all that he planned. He would have been a celebrity plus a ruler plus the richest. He would have owned Fifth Avenue. He would have been able to shut down the store and go in the back to shop for whatever he wanted. All of the best designers would have designed his red carpet look. And even in him arrayed in all of his glory, in the best fit, going to the best occasion, with an army surrounding him, on the best of horses being ushered in, Paul says, you know what's amazing? Solomon, in all of that pomp and circumstance, passing a wildflower in the field, the wildflower is more impressive than him. God is simply better at beauty than us. He's better at provision than us. He's better at controlling than us. It's another reason to give things to him rather than hold them yourself. He goes on in verse 30. He continues to build this tower of logic. Why should we not be committed to or consistently in anxiousness? He says in verse 30 that God cares for the temporal and that if he can care for the temporal things, 
then he will be very able to care for that which is eternal. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive, tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What's the implication here? God gives beauty and life and provision to the grass of the field, which is temporal and small and gone. Will he not care for you who are eternal and valuable and lasting? The answer, of course, is yes. We ought to realize and understand that God has not only existed, but he persists and upholds things from an eternity past, in an eternity present, and all the way into an unimaginable future. If God, and because we entrust him with eternal things, then we can and ought to entrust him with temporal things. Sometimes you have difficulty believing that God could deliver a good conversation with a family member. That's hard for you. You doubt that. But you don't doubt that when you go into the grave one day, God will grasp your eternal spirit and soul and usher you into heaven. You believe for the greater things, Jesus says, don't you see that these are small in comparison? God can care for you temporally. Verse 32, he says, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows another good bit of logic. Anxiety often says, no one knows. No one knows what I'm struggling with. No one knows what I need. I can't see it, therefore no one sees it. And Jesus says, do you understand this? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You need all these things, and your heavenly Father knows. You still may not experience the thing in the moment, but it's a gift to know that He knows. We went out of town one time, and people were going to graciously stay with our kids, and uh, very much my wife is more than me, but she's, uh, she's careful and loving, and she writes out a list of, here's the stuff to think about with the kids. And it's everything from this is where they're going to eat and where their food is and the things they can do and curfews and sleep time and all this stuff to the things they have to go to and get to back and forth. Now, for the record, there's a very clear, here's what you need. We also say to people, and we're very free about this, like, if they're breathing when we get back, we're good. Like, thank you. We know that you're going to do your best. We love you. Great. But if it's helpful, here's a list. It's interesting. We had one time where we went out of town, and the people that were staying with our kids said that they heard a little knock on their door. And a six-year-old was outside the door. They had gone to bed, but now they were up. There was a knock on the door, and the door opened. And there was some concern. What they were met with was a little bit of anxiousness. And the question that was pressed very firmly but kindly from the six-year-old to the people staying with them is, um, do you have an alarm set? Did you know that I need to go to school in the morning? And I have to be ready by 7 o'clock. And did you know that I'm going to go to the school at this place? And what would have helped right in the moment, the thing that was said was, yes, we know. We know. Look, here's the list. Your parents have provided for all of this. They know what you need. And what that information is for a child who's saying, do you know? What that information is for a child is an invitation for them to turn around and to go back and to go to sleep, to close one's eyes, to be able to rest, to put hands over chest and to say, I have a father who knows. In this case, often a mother who knows. <laughs> but Jesus gives the illustration here to show us that many times we forget, we act as if God doesn't know. Does God know? Does he see? Does he in fact know you better than you know you? The answer is a resounding yes. Many times, you're up late, sleepless at night. You're just not sure if he knows. And Jesus says, don't be anxious. Your father knows that you need them all. How many of the things does he know? His list is exhaustive. He knows them all. There is not one thing you're facing right now in this room, not one thing that God did not know before the foundation of the world. He knows. 
There's a sense in which the Spirit wants you to be invited through the work of Christ to see a Father who embraces you and says, I know, I know, I know. It is a balm against the fretful, fear-filled life of anxiety. You have a Father who knows. Verse 33, he just keeps stacking logic. The thing goes higher and higher and higher. Why should we be impressed to not be anxious? Verse 33, he says, you should not be anxious because you have been designed for a better kingdom. In other words, he says, let's crowd out the time you've been given to, you're giving to obsessing about this kingdom and realize you've been designed for a greater kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You've been designed for a better kingdom. Now, the question becomes, and I love that Jesus answers this, he doesn't say, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and who cares if you have nothing here? He says, no, God's going to provide these things to you. How many things are built up into all these things? Imagine all these things will be added to you. It's as though Jesus sort of puts a big hamper of all of the dirty clothes of life. And he's like, I know all these things, they'll be added unto you. Imagine what fits in that category. Is it careless to seek first the kingdom of God and ignore or to not worry about hospital tests? Jesus says all these things. Yes, even hospital tests. Job interviews. And taxes. And homes and housing. And friends and children. Do they fit into all these things? Are they under the category of all? Jesus says, yes, they are. You've been designed for a better kingdom. Seek it. And your Father who knows will provide. You know, I said earlier that the weeds of anxiety have an unbelievable ability to turn sun in. Someone probably did a study on this, and I didn't pay attention in, bio, in not biology, I guess say earth science or something. Maybe their photosynthesizing is just next level. I don't know what it is that allows them to go so fast. It seems to be that for many of us, we, have, we live now in a modern world that has bought ourselves much leisure, but all that means often is that we have enough time to worry more. We have an entire Saturday set aside to imagine the hundred things that could go wrong on Monday morning. To be activated in a seeking of the kingdom, in the, in the good of God's name and his righteousness, the blessing of neighbor and community, to be active in those things will begin to steal away the time that you even had to worry. Who's got time to worry? I'm seeking a better kingdom. I'm involved in a, in a mission here that is fascinating and amazing. Don't give sunlight and water to the weeds. Get busy with the goal of the design of your soul. Finally, verse 34, maybe the tippy top of this tower, at least in these verses of logic, for why should we not be anxious? Can we be convinced he says, you're not promised tomorrow. I love that Jesus is not Pollyannish here. He doesn't just sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, don't worry because everything's going to be perfect tomorrow. You notice what he says? He's like, ah, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Just so you know, the reason to not be anxious is that tomorrow's going to be anxiety free. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, tomorrow's going to be probably much of the same. <laughs> You know, you're still going to be in a fallen world, in a fallen body. You're going to sin and you're going to struggle and people are going to be weird. That's going to happen. But there seems to be a rule throughout all of Scripture, a thread you could pull, and that is that this, God loves to give lavish grace for the moment. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Seek me so long as it's called today. He says there's going to be no temptation except which is common to man, and in the moment that you face it, God will meet you with grace. Grace for the moment is a delightful, wonderful thing. Don't constantly worry about tomorrow. You're not even promised it. It's going to have enough over there. But sometimes you're so worried about the hypothetical problems of tomorrow, you're missing God's presence with you in your need today. Don't give up 
your sight and experience of God's grace for this moment. One more breath, one more step, one more meal, one more hug, one more day to throw yourself into the kingdom of God. All graces for the day. So I hope, my desire would have been that you you see this, that you're just now being completely toppled over by the majesty of the Lego block tower of non-anxious logic. Because that's what Jesus has done, just one after the next. I want to address now, how do we believe? If we're convinced, how do we believe? How do we live? Jesus says to them, oh, you have little faith. It must be tied to faith in some way. And again, I don't want to oversimplify. Life in a fallen world means that our physical bodies are impacted by these things. We have, we have sometimes wiring that predisposes us in certain ways. That stuff is real, but there is a faith component. We cannot give this up. And faith is this leading factor that Jesus gives out. He says, oh, you of little faith. I say that, don't go judging people and telling them that they just don't believe Jesus if they ever worry. That's a mean thing to do. But invite them to faith because Jesus does and we want to be like Jesus. He says, oh, you of little faith a number of times in Matthew. Chapter 8, Disciples are worried about the waves and the wind with the boat. Jesus is sleeping, and he says, do you think I didn't know? Do you think I can't calm this? He says in chapter 14 with Peter walking on the water, Peter, why did you look down? He says in chapter 16, the disciples are confused. He tells them to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, and they think that he wants bread, real bread, and they're all nervous. And then Jesus says to them, don't you remember? I can feed 5,000 from nothing. So how do we get to faith? Well, here's a few little thoughts. Let's do what Jesus tells us. Sometimes we need to stop and look in the right directions. He says twice in this passage, one about the birds, look. Second, he says, consider. There are times when we need to have good friends or people around us, or we need the Spirit of God to help us to see what we cannot see, to consider when we're not considering, to ponder anew what the Lord God Almighty can do. There's a sense in which we need to slow down. Life is a spinning carousel of crazy. The invitation of Jesus seems to be, let's rest for a minute. Let's look and ponder. If you do not have time in your life built in to ponder these things, the invitation would be to pause. Then we've already seen from 1 Peter, cast. When you're pondering and you find yourself priorities that are odd, even if you can't escape them, say, God, give me the power to cast these things on you. Sometimes that means you write them down. Sometimes it means you pray them out. Sometimes it means that you say, I'm not going to give it any more sun and water. I'm casting this thing on Jesus. This is a practice for the Christian, that we ought to be good at casting. I went fly fishing last year for the first time. I was terrible. By the last day, though, I was a little bit better. What I hope is, is like good fly fishermen have done it for 30 years, that Christians ought to be like this. We ought to say, oh, I found the thing. I'm putting it on this. I know exactly how to throw it where I want. I hit it square into the face of Jesus every time. What do I do with this weight? I chuck. We should not only ponder and look, but when what we see be good and quick, to have easy hands that open to throw things at God. And we ought to believe. Remember the promises and believe. Sometimes the command of Scripture is simply this, believe. Do you believe that God sees and knows? Do you believe that He is going ahead of you for the next hospital visit, the next test? Do you believe that He understands the conflict? Is God a reconciler? Is Jesus the Prince of Peace? Can He go before you into places of difficulty and conflict and confrontation? Does Jesus know your struggle with sin? Does he know the guilt, the things that you've never shared, the things that you can't get quite through? The answer in all of these cases is yes. So believe him. Believe that you're still loved. Believe that you belong. Believe that he sees and knows and provides. Believe that he cares about you more than birds, that he can clothe you better than the lilies of the field. Let this one thought control. I have a father who loves me. I will be fine. And after we've looked or pondered and cast or chucked, and after we've believed or trusted or rehearsed, then seek. Ask yourself, can I redirect the energy of anxiety into a seeking of the kingdom? 
Are there people whose needs I can help to meet? Are there neighbors to love? Are there communities to build? Is there a righteousness in God's vision for the world that I can get after? Can I rejoice in what God rejoices in more powerfully? In other words, empty the tank of anxiety and gas the mission of the kingdom of God. Don't let idle hands and leisure time be wasted in endless theoretical pondering of the worst possibilities that you can't control anyway. That's the invitation of Jesus. Ultimately, we can trust Jesus because He is the sustainer of our souls. He is the one that's promised. He has a place for us. You will never, ever, ever lack by giving what was never yours to control anyway to Him. I want to end by reading the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg's a wonderful catechism. It's not on the screens. I just want you to listen to these words. Listen to how it starts. If you were going to write a, a description of all that we need to know and consider and rest in concerning the Christian life, what would you start with? Well, here's how this one starts. What is your only comfort in life and death? I'll say the question again. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. And then note how earthy and anxiety-battling this gets. The answer says, He also preserves me. My faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life, and He makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Jesus Christ has grasped us. He will hold us. He has forgiven our sins. He has set us free. The power that is in us is greater than the power that's in the world. He will preserve us in such a way that not a single hair can fall from a bald head except that the will of our Father who knows, sees, and ordains. And all things must work together for our salvation. Are you assured of this? If not then rush to Jesus. Give Him all that you have, all that you want, all that you need. He will never, ever, ever fail you. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray.